You are about to listen to the full interview with Zach Van Eyck. Sections of it were originally included in our Skinwalker Ranch episode. If you haven't listened to the full episode, we recommend you go listen. It'll provide context for this interview. Zach was the original reporter who broke the story about Skinwalker Ranch and had the opportunity to speak directly to the Shermans. I'm a longtime journalist. I'm a screenwriter as well. And I started my journalism career actually when I was 14 as a sports writer for the Anchorage Times in Alaska. And um, I was a high school sports writer throughout um, those four years and won a scholarship to Vanderbilt University as a result. And I loved sports writing, but it was, um, you know, it was a late night job. And so when I got married, uh, my now ex-wife said, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. You need to start writing news and you do something that isn't going to bring you home so late. So I did transition over to news and at first it was, there were a lot of late nights with that too, but um, I'd always been interested in UFOs and the paranormal. When I was in school here in Virginia, back in the early 70s, they showed us Chariots of the Gods and I think that was my first exposure. Um, Also uh, the um, psychic uh, Edgar Cayce that some people may be familiar with. It's been a while now since he's passed away, but my grandfather was Edgar Cayce's minister in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And my mom was actually born in Virginia Beach. And so when we used to go to the beach when I was a kid, we would hang out with Edgar Casey's family, not not Edgar, but his sons, his sons. And, and you know, the Casey readings have a lot of uh, astrology. That's kind of how I got into astrology. I'm also a professional astrologer. And they, you know, he had a lot in there about uh, alien races and whatnot. So that piqued my interest. So I've always had this interest. And so when I was in Oregon in my 20s, and I was still a sports writer, um, there was something on the news about a guy down in Sutherland, Oregon, about an hour and a half south of Eugene, I was at the University of Oregon at the time, who supposedly had contact with these Bigfoot-like creatures who were alien, and they took him to Venus, and it was on the local news, and I'm just a college student at that point, I'm like, wow, that's really exciting, I'm going to go talk to this guy, so I drove an hour and a half south, and just, you know, said, hey, I'm interested, and interviewed the guy, and was really disappointed, Um, he, he was obvious, I mean, he was kind of a simple guy, uh, older guy, logger, who just really liked the attention because his whole story just, it, it just didn't make it. It was too childlike and it, it was like something an old guy who wants attention would, would make up. So that was kind of disappointing, but you know, I, I, it was kind of a good litmus test for me to really just break through all the garbage. And of course, I, you know, as a journalist, it's like you, you ask tough questions, you grow people, you get a sense. And, and a lot of that is their energy and everything. I mentioned that just because when I interviewed the Shermans years later, uh, it was just obvious that they were they were telling the truth. And and, and, and that's partly, you know, I, I hearken back to this interview of the Bigfoot guy because it's like, it, it took a little bit, but it was pretty, pretty apparent after a few questions that, you know, it just wasn't real. So anyway, so I, so I become a news writer and in, this happened in New Mexico. Um, I had uh, I was working actually in, in news in Virginia. Got a job in '91 at the Santa Fe, late '91 at the Santa Fe New Mexican, uh, and was working sports originally, and then uh, won an award for one of my sports investigative reports. And the managing editor Rob Dean, who has since passed away, but he was awesome. He said, "Zach, I want you to move over to news, and I want you to become an enterprise reporter." And they would just hand me like projects, and I would spend a couple weeks on them, right? So we did like this really extensive um, two-week report on hunger and poverty in northern New Mexico, which was really revealing and and uh, sad, but, you know, worthwhile journalistically. Um, I did a lot on the Indian gaming situation because there were a bunch of Pueblos in northern New Mexico at that time that were trying to get gaming compacts with the government. And then this ended up being um, another story I did sort of very late 
in uh, 94 before I got the job at the Desert News in Salt Lake. And it was all about the cattle mutilations and UFO flap that was happening in northern New Mexico between 91 and 94. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff going on in the San Luis Valley, just north of northern New Mexico. There was a lot of stuff going on in Taos. I I think it was our sister paper in Taos that started covering UFOs. And then Rob is like, you know, we need to look into this further. One of the cases, there was this, um, there was a sheriff's deputy who went on the record and gave me the name of the rancher. His name is Larry Gardia. And this guy, Larry, was out bear hunting. This was the uh, fall of 94. And he came across some, he saw about a dozen cattle that were running. And then he came, you know, a very thick, thickly wooded area. Okay. And he came across Three, I think they were all calves, um, or one was a calf, I think the others were cows. Anyway, there were three of them. One was floating through the air, okay, sort of being drawn by some kind of invisible beam, and he he could hear a sound, but didn't see anything, didn't see anything in the trees, but just a sort of a humming sound. No light, okay, associated, not like a light beam, but just but something that was drawing this calf through. So he had his gun, so he shot twice in the direction of where the humming sound was coming from, in the direction of where the cow was being drawn. And the cow fell, immediately hit the ground. The um, the sound went away. He never did see anything, but he was freaked out, so he ran. And there, there were two other cows sort of that were in the process, I guess. Like One was like on its knees and was bawling but couldn't move, and there was another one that couldn't move. So he came back, and they fed, let's see, the first cow that he saw was, was actually still there it was mutilated the other two were gone came back with the sheriff's deputy um but that was that was an interesting case just because it had the uh, it had the sound beam and somebody actually saw a cow going through the air so i thought that was pretty interesting and that was one of the cases towards the end of my tenure there that was really interesting but there were basically 40 46 cattle mutilations in northern new mexico in uh, 93 and 94 that's how many we were able to and 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 two of them were primarily the the or the two um cattle owners were two ranchers who had a lot of head of cattle and they were pretty far away from each other like maybe 100 miles or so and i think one rancher had about 15 head that were mutilated the other had maybe a dozen and then all the others were like small ranchers and that's kind of what i did with that story is i would go talk to these small ranchers because in northern mexico you have a lot of families that have maybe eight to ten head of cattle and they live off of that and if they lose a cow that's a lot of money uh, and that, you know, makes a difference between making a profit and eating well over the winter, et cetera. So these guys, you know, they would see lights in the sky and they would hear something. And they would go out the next morning or they'd go out at that time, find their cows mutilated. Uh, so you'd lost a cow. You saw some lights. You can't explain it. This this happened repeatedly in northern New Mexico. And I talked to the local ranchers who had this happen. And, they, and, and there was no support from the government. That's another thing we did. There was a study commissioned in New Mexico in 1980. Ken Rommel did. You can look it up. R O M M E L. He um he was a former he's a former FBI guy. I think uh, it basically it was you know he he was paid a lot of money by the state because they had a lot of ranchers who were calling and saying our cows are being mutilated. And he basically concluded, and this was earlier. This was this was over the seventy five to, to nineteen eighty flap that happened in northern New Mexico, in Colorado. So this goes uh, back a bit, but basically. His, his conclusion that it was that it was uh, toxic weeds, blowflies, and other predators that were, yeah, it was just ridiculous. 
That's funny. That's funny because I, you know, when reading about the the cattle mutilations in Utah, I mean, I, I, I see lots of people giving that exact word for word answer as the explanation. Yeah. Um, it seems like that explanation, even though it was given about the, the situation in New Mexico, has stuck um, for pretty much any cattle mutilation that is found across the country. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. And and I think uh, to a large degree, that's why we didn't really see a lot of cattle mutilations in the 80s, or at least they weren't recorded, because I'm working, of course, this is 94 by the time I'm getting to it, uh, and going back and looking at it, but I think that report just kind of silenced a lot of people in the ranchers and said, oh, there's no point in telling anybody. Well, anyway, but my point is that I spent a great deal of time and energy on that, and then after that series came out, I think I was there in Santa Fe for a few more months, and, and I did follow-up stories like the Larry Gardeo one I told you about, because people started calling me after that series, was like, hey, I saw this, I had this happen, you know, so... So anyway, so now now we're at the end of uh, <clears throat> end of '94, and we uh, we had a a baby on the way, and we were living in a in an apartment that was much cheaper than it should have been because it was owned by a guy who worked at the paper. Because uh, Northern Mexico is really, I mean, for journalists to to afford to live in Santa Fe, we lived in San Miguel County. We lived in Pecos. We were like 35 minutes away, uh, just because we couldn't afford Santa Fe. But but uh, so this person who was renting. The apartment he was living in town with his girlfriend they broke up he's like hey i kind of need to get back into my place so i have uh, a toddler and a pregnant wife who's about to uh give birth in six weeks and i've got to get out of this house so i basically did an extensive job search everywhere west of the mississippi which is where my ex-wife was willing to go and i this first round i just didn't get anything and I, and I was working off the editor and publisher yearbook that used to have that listed all of the newspapers and so i had applied to the salt lake tribune and i hadn't noticed because there was a joint operating agreement between the two papers that the deseret news i didn't even know it existed but it was listed much further down after the tribune so i realized like weeks after i'd written what i thought was every paper in the west i had skipped the deseret news so i wrote them and i got a call like right away and, and i had just talked to people in montana about working for them and the salary was just awful. And so when Rick Hall, who was the city editor at the time for the Deseret News, and Rick did end up hiring me, he was later the managing editor for him, great guy, recently retired. But when Rick got on the phone and he said, he's going to hire me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, how much are you going to pay me? <laughs> and, uh, and it was really good. It was really good. And I always joke that the reason Deseret News pays so much is because, uh, you know, Mormon-owned papers, so they figured most of their workers would have to give 10% tithing to the church and they might have more than one wife uh, or certainly five or six kids. So I always, I, I loved working for that paper, very well paid, happy to be there. And when I got the job, I told them about the, you know, they had read a lot of my enterprise reporting for New Mexico. That's really what got me the job, including the catamulation stuff. And I knew it was a Mormon owned paper. So I thought at least they would be receptive to the idea of UFOs and aliens and probably wouldn't be, uh, you know, every newspaper depends on your ownership in terms of what you're allowed to cover or not. And so I thought they, I thought, you know, hey, yeah, you know, there's probably stuff happening here too. So when I got the job, I told them that. And then I became a suburban reporter for two years. So from 94 to 96, I was basically just covering local government, but I still had this keen interest in, in UFOs paranormal, obviously. And I got to know uh, Mildred Beasley, who was the MUFON director of Utah at the time. And Mildred, I think, was in her mid to late 80s at that time. She's no longer with us, but, she, but Mildred was great. And she lived not far in Cottonwood, not far from the cities that I was covering. So often I would just go by and hang out with Mildred for a half hour <laughs> and talk about UFOs in Utah and everything just for, just for fun, just because it was my own interest. And um, I met a few people through her and she told me about a lot of stories. So I kind of knew 
But there was stuff going on, but I didn't press it with my bosses. It really wasn't that big of a deal to me. I mean, if I'm assigned something like that, it's great, but I can do whatever. And we were just happy to have a good job that was supporting me, a wife who didn't work, and two kids, right? So I'm not going to make waves. So then Rick and the other editors uh, came to me in July of 96, or sorry, June of 96, probably probably May. It was probably in May or early June. And they said, um, you know, this movie Independence Day is coming out on the July 4th weekend, and we would like to localize it, which papers always do. Right? You have something big that's happening in the world, you try to localize it. So they're like, hey, why don't you go out and see if there are some UFO cases here locally that we can write about? And of course, uh, there were many of them, and, and the original story lists a lot of those, but it it, it uh, focuses primarily on the Shermans. But anyway, so, so I already knew about Frank Salisbury's book. Frank Salisbury, who's also passed, but he did uh it was called the utah ufo display it came out in 1974 and he did an abridged version in 2010 and i highly recommend it um frank basically essentially his work led me to find out about the shermans because the guy that frank based most of the book on was um was the research of uh joseph jr hicks who was the now legendary he just passed last year, actually, I believe at age 90 uh, or maybe thereabouts. Um, but he was the guy that everyone locally in the Uinta Basin, in fact, Junior told me, he said he thinks about, um, he thought about 10% of the Uinta Basin population in Utah, Eastern Utah, had, had seen something themselves. I mean, that's, that's pretty big, 10%. And I think if you add in the people who know somebody who saw something or had an experience, it's probably a lot larger. But anyway, he so Junior, between 70 and 75, and this was featured in... Um, or 7074 featured in Frank's book. Um, Junior, and I guess this was this was in the 60s as well, he created, I, I think there were, there were 400 cases that he had documented of people coming in, telling him what they had seen. Seven of those 400, first of all, let me back up because I know there were there were over a thousand cases that of people who had come to Junior over those like three, four decades and said, you know, I saw this, this is what happened. Now, out of those 1,000, 400 basically were good enough to, to make the book. Uh, or, or were substantial enough where he felt like they were unexplained. And then out of those 400, there were seven in which the witnesses saw a creature or a being either in a craft, like through the portals, you know, through the windows, or, or outside of the craft. So, so there were seven that were like that. And I believe, I, yeah, I spoke to one of those people uh, in the original story. So, you know, there's a lot going on out there. So Junior was the guy to talk to. So I went out to the basin. The long interview with Junior, he was kind of hesitant because he didn't really want to get it. I mean, you know, it's just kind of a no-win situation because you're, you're the local UFO guy and everybody reports things to you. And then people come to you and say, hey, you know, what do you think? And, and he just kind of, I think it had enough of it. But he was very, very cordial and did agree to speak with me. And we had a long interview and he gave me some people to talk to. And so I, I spent a whole day out there. And so I was about to leave and I, and I called him back to thank him. And I said, you know, Junior, this is great. Um, thank you. You know, I've talked to a lot of people who've seen things. But most of these things are things that happened in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I said, you know, I can't believe with all this activity that it has really calmed down so much, you know, right now in, in 1996 at that time. So I said, you know, and this is a good reporter always asks follow-up questions. So um, I was like, before I let you go, you know, Junior, are you, you sure there's not anything like local that's happening recently like is there anything current and he paused for a long time long enough that i thought he was no longer on the line and uh and he said well 
you might want to call Gwen down at the bank. And it was with those words that uh, this story happened because I was on the phone five minutes later before I left town, talked to Gwen Sherman, who had worked at one of the banks in town for 20 years. She was from the area. She and her husband, Terry, uh, Terry had moved to the Uinta Basin when he was 17 from Arizona. So they had, they were entrenched there in the community. Uh, he had an advanced degree in animal husbandry and wanted to create his own hybrid line of cattle, which kind of works into this too, because all of the cows that were either mutilated or disappeared on the ranch in those two years were the hybrid cattle. He had other cattle too, but it was the expensive hybrid cattle that the mutilators apparently were interested in. But anyway, so, so Gwen was kind of at the end of her rope and, and, you know, I, I feel like this was really meant to happen because, um, um, I had so many, I, I had like a seven page list of phone numbers of people in New Mexico who had had very similar things happen to them. And that's the first thing I did was, you know, I, I gave them some numbers. I say, here's some people you can call. I think, I think Terry called people on my list before I even came out and interviewed him. I came out a few days later. Um, but Gwen was, you know, sort of at the end of the road and wasn't sure if Terry wanted to talk to the media. And I said, look, I understand that, but I think this is incredible. People need to know that this is happening. And I can tell you that the same thing is happening in northern New Mexico. Here's a long list of people you can call. And so they were able to get, you know, at least some comfort that they weren't alone. And then the other big part of this was that when I was doing the stories in New Mexico, um, of course, Art Bell was uh, doing his Dreamland every Sunday night and then coast to coast during the week. And I used to get off work pretty late, and I'd listen to Coast to Coast on the way home, so I was aware of that. I used to listen to uh, Linda Moulton Howe and her interviews on there. And so, and, and I did know Linda. I'd, I'd been in touch with her um, during the New Mexico situation because she was actually in northern New Mexico investigating them as well. So, and I knew that she had a grant. She was working under a grant from, from Robert Bigelow. And I knew a little bit about Robert Bigelow. No, nobody knew a lot, but he was kind of seen as sort of a secretive, character who had money who was interested in, in studying UFOs. So I actually, you know, I think even when Junior mentioned the ranch to me, gave me a few details, I'm like, you know, even before I talked to Gwen, I'm like, oh man, Robert Bigelow is going to buy this place. You know, I mean, I just felt strongly. And, and that was the thing that the Shermans were looking to get out. I mean, they had paid, okay, I know that they sold the ranch to Bigelow for 200000 I believe they paid about 240000 I know they, they took a loss on it. And of course, Bigelow's a shrewd businessman, you know, and, and he has since now sold the ranch for, what, $4.5 million, I think is what it was. And, and, of course, in the early days, people wondered if he was, like, part of the government. Well, he became part of the government because he ended up giving a $22 million contract to uh, to study UFOs and paranormal. But, but anyway, so there initially it was just, you know, it was a good fit because they were willing to go on the record. I was able to give them a lot of resources. And within three weeks of the time that the article came out, Bigelow... Uh, along with Jacques Vallée and some other people, was was on the ground on the ranch, and they bought it that August. So I, I feel really good about it from the standpoint that, you know, I helped get a family out of a situation that they were not comfortable with because they had put up with this stuff for almost two years at that point and just were at the end of their rope and didn't know what to do. And it just seemed like Robert Bigelow was the obvious guy to come in. So I'm real happy about how all of that has worked out. And I'm glad that it has been studied and it continues to be studied. I know that the Shermans initially got a little, you know, flack from the community and the kids were teased a little bit um, when it became public, but they also had a lot of people who came forward to them and said, you know, Hey, this is, um, this is going on. We've, we've had this happen too, or something similar. Um, and I know they had visits from, a guy who, this was after the article, and they were still living on the ranch, um, a naval officer from North Carolina who gave Terry his card. I never saw the card, but they told me about it. 
uh, and he was quite interested and then uh, seemed to be supportive, you know, government. And, and then he disappears, doesn't show up. There was a there was a white truck that had a different license plate every time. And it was just kind of sitting out there watching the ranch for, for a while. And Terry, Terry figured it out. He took pictures of the license plate. He had a friend who worked up at uh, in the in the um, traffic pool at uh, Hill Air Force Base. And he was able to find out that the car was registered to Hill. And he actually went out and talked to the guy, I believe. Um, so, yeah, so Hill Air Force, the Air Force sent somebody down there to look around. The Navy was apparently poking around. Um, <clears throat> he had some some uh, guys from sort of anti-government folks from Michigan who came down there and told him it was a CIA plot and he needed to get off the land, you know, and they had a guy show up. There was a guy who showed up who just like a hippie guy that really wanted to commune, just kind of be there. And so he like goes out in the field and he does his thing and Terry's watching him. And then there's like something, something like, um, was Predator the movie? I didn't see it. The one where the, the being disappears, right? It, it like, yeah, so it was kind of like that, where he saw some, this individual saw something coming at him, you know, but it was like only half physical. It wasn't completely materialized and it scared the hell out of him. And, and he left and they never saw him again. But, you know, th- those kinds of things. So that, but, but anyway, so, so when I did, so I went out there. In fact, um, I made a Carmen, our photographer. Uh, this is like three and a half miles, or, sorry, three and a half hours from Salt Lake, right? Three to three and a half hours. So, if you're a paper and you're sending out a writer and a reporter, you would normally send them together. But I'm like, oh, dude, I'm not. I'm going to be there as long as I can. So why don't you take your own car? And so Carmen did, and she was there about 25 minutes, and then I was there about three hours. And I was on the ranch, but nothing happened. I didn't feel anything unusual. I just, you know, got great information from Terry. And Terry told me right up front. He said, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you everything. And the one big thing that happened early on that he didn't mention to us but came out later was, uh, I think David Perkins got this in his article in Spirit Magazine, which is online. This is a late, I'll talk about that in a minute. But it was about the uh, the large wolf dog-like creature that they saw very early on. And Terry shot it, I believe, eight times and uh, didn't do anything to the creature. And it looked really big. And, you know, and this was like the first of many different types of of animals that they saw that just didn't seem to belong there like like a like a big cat like a you know like a jungle cat was up in a tree um <clears throat> terry shot at something that he described as like a velociraptor because he saw that it had like three toes like claw marks on the ground and it also like went up in a tree and most of these just kind of like disappear so uh yeah really interesting stuff so so anyway so when i'm out there talking to terry uh, you know at the end i'm like terry if you left some stuff out, I don't know what you left out, but this is <laughs> this is more than enough. Because basically, what what you know, because I mean, I th- and I do think I see his reasoning because you know, yeah, okay, a big a prehistoric wolf that won't be shot is one thing, but then seeing seeing UFOs in the sky is another thing because people are used to this. So I can understand why you left that out. But basically, they you know, there were so many interesting things that that happened there, and it, it just you know, the the three different types of craft that they were seeing, the small. Um, six foot like box light, like a refrigerator flying through the air. Then there was like a, um, and, and they, and they had a white light on the front. And then there was the second vehicles were like, they were like 40 to 60 feet long and they had short wings and they would emit like a, a red light that would go onto the ground. And Terry thought it was like, uh, some sort of grid that they were following, you know, like, like going over the, like maybe looking for something. I don't know, but this was something they saw, with their uh, infrared sights uh, from their front porch. It was over in the second pasture and above the ridge, 
there were these, uh, and this is probably probably the most famous thing from the ranch that people are aware of, I think, is when these large portals opened up in the sky. And Terry and Glenn both said that they, they would like spiral open, okay? And there were up to four windows in the sky, and they were like 100 feet across. That was just their estimate. And, and these four windows, not all of them were all open at the same time, but when they were, they were always at the same location to each other. And behind, on the other side, you could see like a different sky, like it was an auburn color, like something, you know, totally different background from where they were they were coming. And these were the ships that, you know, they saw more than a dozen one night come out and kind of follow, you know, they came out of those holes uh, above the ridge, came down over the second pasture and did this grid pattern with the red wavy lines, like they were looking for something. And they watched this and then the ships would go back into the, um, into, into the holes of whatever this was. And so... It's like, okay, is that is that a cloaked or somehow invisible ship where we're only seeing the windows and what we're seeing is the other side of the ship and it's a massive ship because they did see like like a mile long, you know, just giant UFOs come up behind the ridge. So maybe it was cloaked or something. Or are those portals to another dimension? I mean, all that's been been talked about and discussed. So but I but I think that was probably the most interesting thing, but there were so many little things and you know, this poltergeist type activity too, like um Gwen, there was one night when she simply went into the bathroom to take a shower. She brought her towel in and some other personal items and she locked the door and then showered, got out of the shower and the towel and her personal items were gone. Uh, I'm not sure where she found them, but they weren't in the bathroom, which was locked. Okay, weird, right? Um, she had a couple other things like that too when they were living there. Uh, she brought the groceries home one day and put them up. And then she went to another room and came back like five minutes later and on the kitchen counter, all of the groceries were back in bags um, totally repacked differently, you know, but she had just put them up. It's like, okay, does someone want me to think I'm losing my mind? What's going on? <laughs> you know, um, their son had stacked an entire cord of wood, came inside, went out 30 minutes later, and the entire cord of wood was restacked 100 yards away in a different location. Okay. Um, there was an incident, too, where Terry and his, I believe it was his nephew, because his daughter, I think their daughter was about nine or 10. This is a two year period, 94 to 96. Their son was, I think, 12 or 13. And I think he had a nephew that was about 15. So I think Terry was with the nephew and they were out. Um, this is one of the fairly early incidents where they were just out on the pasture and they heard uh, voices talking like above them, like 25 feet above. It couldn't see anything. There was like a tree there. And Terry described the voices as being, um, there were two. He described them as male. One had a one had a much deeper voice than the other, and they were talking in some kind of language that Terry said was very choppy, and he likened it to sort of a cross between um, a Native American language and Russian. And I, I joked about it being Klingon, you know, and he laughed. But anyway, uh, so what they, they they heard this strange language, and and so Terry decided just to you know looking up, he said, said we can hear you. <laughs> And one of the voices, the, the, the one with the lower voice just started laughing, like a rolling laugh. And then apparently the conversation between the two disembodied voices continued for a little bit. And the dogs got freaked out, of course. Um, very interesting. So, you know, there's a lot going on in terms of, you know, is, is there a manipulation of time and space here? Um, what are we dealing with? Um, and, uh, and, and I do have some of my own uh, theories. So maybe maybe we can yep. take a step back and just I, I'd love to hear from you like what that first conversation 
with the Shermans was like when you first called them? How did that conversation go? And what was their kind of their reaction to to talking about this with well, you? Well, I, I think Lynn was was interested in talking to a reporter because, you know, I mean, both she and Terry were just trying to stick it out, basically. But they really were at the end of their road because at that point he had already showed the property to um, a family, but he didn't want to sell it to a family and also to a hunting club that wanted to come out and hunt. And he didn't feel safe about that. So I think Gwen in particular was really interested in getting the story out. I, I suppose just just because they were so desperate and needed help and just were sick of going in alone, you know, and it was just like, hey, it's time for people to know about this kind of thing. And then. So I don't know if, if she talked Terry into it or if, you know, what, but he, he was, like I said, he was resident to talk about certain things, but um, he should, like when I was out there, there was, you could see the, the really big scoops in the ground where, I mean, some of it had eroded, but there were, you know, when they first moved in there, they found like this triangular pattern of circles that were about two feet deep cut into the pasture. And they were like eight feet wide, the circles, eight feet around. And then they were 30 feet from each other in a triangular pattern, you know, obviously suggesting, okay, it's just like a triangular landing pod or something. Cause that's kind of what it looked like. And then there were other places out in the pasture where these big scoops of ground had been taken. And it looked like someone had removed a tree, but there were never any trees out there in the middle of the pasture, that kind of thing. So they, they took me around and showed me stuff. But yeah, Terry was, you know, I think Terry was, concerned uh, about to some degree about what you know that's why i say he didn't tell me everything but um they were great they were great and and i i think i did as much as much as terry would tell me i would then relate a case from new mexico or something that i was familiar with and say you know well that that's consistent with this or that's consistent with that you know or linda moulton howe has written about that or you know that kind of stuff so it went really well because i, I and it was good you know that i had a background i think if i had been just any reporter like assigned to it. I mean, obviously I wouldn't have come across it, I think, but I, you know, uh, so yeah, I, you know, I had no problem with it. It was great. Um, and I, and I did a follow-up interview and then of course, so here's what happened. I'll, I'll tell you a little more about so what happened right after that. So, um, I had been in touch with Ryan Layton, who is, um, an investigator in, in Utah. Ryan's a great guy. He, uh, I met him through Mildred Beasley. And when I first started working on the story, I contacted Ryan and some of the People that ended up being in the original article that were not the Shermans were people that Ryan had told me about and interviewed, and it, it was great. So he was in touch with Linda Moulton Howe. Like I said, I had uh, talked to Linda Moulton Howe like two years before, and of course, Linda is probably the preeminent uh, paranormal journalist uh, on the planet, and her website is great. And she was working, you know, she was on Art Bell every Sunday night. So, so Ryan was like really excited. He's like, oh my gosh, because I, because you know, once I found out about the Sherman Ranch, I'm like, hey Ryan, you know all these tips you gave me? I got a story that beat it. Let me tell you, okay? So, so he he was going to call in the Molten Howe the minute the article came out, and I agreed to that with him. And so, once it was set up and everything, I let him know. And so I think so. June 30th, '96, the article comes out, and and I'm sure the minute he got up, he called Linda, and it which was fine because I just wanted to I wanted to break the story and then everybody else can can have at it and and add to it which is great and so Linda then had um, Terry on for a full let's say a full hour on the first hour of Dreamland that next Sunday night which is July whatever that was July in fact I've got the transcript here it's really great it should be on Linda Moulton Howe's website but uh, uh, yeah I got to find that I haven't heard that yet actually I'd love I need to find yeah, that yeah it is really good um, it just says it's copywritten two thousand four. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe, even though it was much earlier than that, but it, it should be online. Um, and, and he didn't give a whole lot of new information, but a little bit. Um, 
but that really got it out there. And the other thing that happened too is that, um, in fact, I heard I was like out in the yard working the day that the article. I'm trying to think if it was. I guess it was the next weekend because because July Fourth weekend was the big Independence Day, right? Uh, the movie coming out. So um, I'm not sure what radio network it was, but it was like mutual or one of those CBS, somebody that goes all over all over the place, right? And it was I just had the radio on. I think it was sports radio and. And and the little kicker, the little button at the end of the newscast, after they mentioned Independence Day and its opening day weekend or whatever, and said, oh, and, and speaking of UFOs, <laughs> there's a family in Utah that says they have been visited by, you know. And, and, so, and that was like international radio. So it really started to pick up and go. And then before, before Bigelow bought it, um, uh, David Perkins, whose article is in Spirit Magazine, it's online. I highly recommend everybody read it because... I'm not, in fact, I think David interviewed Terry after Bigelow came into the picture. Uh, I believe that's true because the article, his article didn't come out until about six months after mine, and I'm not sure how he got that interview. I'm glad he did because as soon as uh, the Sherman signed with Bigelow, they weren't talking to anybody anymore. But, but David's article has a lot of detail. And then um, Ryan Layton was really excited, so he went out and met him a couple of times and said, hey, I want to talk to you and got more information. And then Chris O'Brien, who is great. I've met Chris a couple of times. He's uh, the guy who, uh, the mysterious valley, the San Luis Valley. He's written several books about it, all the UFO sightings and everything. And so he talked to the Shermans as well. So <clears throat> there was a wealth of information that was out before uh, Bigelow came in. And then, and then Bigelow sort of put an end to that. And then finally, um, after they had been out there for two years, they meaning the National Institute for Discovery Science, which, which Bigelow had founded in, in 95. So it was perfect. It, I mean, that's exactly what they were looking for. And he brought his people out there, but they were very secretive about it at first. But then um, two years later, summer of 98, uh, the paper sent me down because we've been trying to get Bigelow. We tried to get an interview with him or a picture, but we didn't even know what his middle initial was. It's middle initial T. But, it, but back then, you know, before uh, the widespread internet and stuff, it was hard to really uh, get as much information as you can now. So, so we were after him. So two years, finally, he's like, they haven't released anything about what's going on in there, but he agrees to, to a face-to-face interview. And the reason he agreed really is because they, at that point, decided that what they needed to do was have a hotline number so that anybody in the UNA Basin who had any kind of countermutilation or UFO activity or whatever could call them and the scientists could go check it out. So they finally realized, oh, we need the press. We need people, you know. So, so he still wouldn't allow us to take his picture, but I went down and wrote a, a long article on him and spent a lot of time with him in Vegas. And he actually um, offered me a job working for NIDS, but it was about the same money as Desert News and my, my wife was not having it. So, but, but I often wonder, and she didn't want to live in Vegas either, but I often wonder if I had taken that job, you know, uh, how things might have turned out differently. That would have been a cool job. That would have been a very would have cool been. Job. I mean, I'm happy with how my life went. But yeah, it, I mean, I I got to meet um, Colin Kelleher and Eric Davis. I love, Eric Davis is amazing. He he, uh, I really connected with. Him. He was one of the physicists who was working for NIDS. And um, you know, I think they did their best. And I think I think Bigelow is not maybe the most patient person, even though the other were out there for like six years. But it's like okay. It was like watching watching the kettle, you know, and it just wasn't, you know, yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. I mean, he did have some stuff that happened, and then uh, I don't know. I think I think Bigelow he went on to his um, Bigelow Aerospace, which I'm curious about now because I know they laid off everybody during COVID. And I don't know if they're coming back or not. That's that's a whole interesting thing. But um, he also has his uh, Life After Death Institute. He's doing yeah, as well research yeah, for Life which, After which Death. Which he told me about in '98, and that's actually 
when he founded NIDS, that was sort of the other half of NIDS was that life after death. Mm. He had a son that died early, and so he was always interested in that. And, and his UFO experience, I'll tell you this real quick. So the reason he really got into that was that when he was a kid um, in the 50s, he said there was like nothing to do in Vegas. And so, you know, a small town back then. Uh, and the only thing to do for fun was to drive down the street and get ice cream. And so this one night, apparently his grandparents, he was not with him, but his grandparents drove down to get ice cream. And they, there was this, um, they were just, I don't know what road they were on, but there, there was this, uh, fireball kind of thing that was like flying straight at them, like coming at them. And, and they swerved off the road thinking for sure there was going to be an impact. And then the object just like came really, really close. It was like like on fire, a fireball. And then it just like made a turn, 90 degree turn and went up into the sky. And it just really made an impact on his grandparents. And they told him that he was eight at the time. And when he was 10, two years later, they told him the story. And I think from that point, he said he was, he was pretty much uh, hooked and wanted to find out what it was all about because he had a, a personal family uh, encounter with it. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I think it's great that, that Bob came in and relieved the Shermans of the ranch, and I'm glad Brandon has it now because, you know, here we are on the second season of um, Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. I think it's good, although, you know, I, I'm not that excited to watch the second season because I've seen these guys talk about it and they're promoting it, and I'm like, well, okay, but if anything really significant happened, wouldn't we know about it by now? <laughs> right, exactly. That's the problem That's the problem with yeah. shows like that. It's like, you know, if they did catch something, we'd already have heard about yeah. it. But I, I do want to ask you about, you mentioned Jacques Vallée. Did he, he went to the ranch at some yeah, point? Yeah, that's, we um, that's what we were told. Just that, in, that initial trip, I think he flew him in there um, in July of 96. Do you know much about his visit and kind of what happened when he Don't, was there? Um, I know there were a couple of other people who were in the field, too. I think he was, I think how put off may have been there, too. Some of these guys that, that uh, Bigelow already had with him, <coughs> excuse me, in, uh, in NIDS. Um, John Alexander, of course, was part of NIDS. And I actually, um, I talked to John on the phone when I was in New Mexico, because John Alexander, of course, uh, had been the, uh, the head of uh, non-lethal weapons at Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is you know, very close to where I was in Santa Fe. And in fact, his, I met his wife when I was in New Mexico because she came to deliver some stuff that he was interested in. And uh, they were good sources for what was going on in New Mexico. And then I ended up meeting him in 98 in Vegas. And I really liked John a lot. In fact, um, I do want to mention real quick, um, the book that John wrote that came out fairly recently, I think a couple years ago, it's called Reality Denied. And it's by John B. Alexander, Ph.D. And if you go to the very first chapter, it says the NIDS experience. And John talks all about like the dogs, which we haven't talked about yet, the dogs that were zapped. Um, the, the, you know, the, the family lost their three dogs because these blue orbs apparently zapped them into nothing. It's little little piles of apple butter. Uh, <clears throat> but anyway, um, John, John's book elaborates quite a bit on and, and I think it's better than I mean, uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker is good. Uh, the Cone Kelleher book, that was the 2005 by the George Knapp, which, which pretty much put it on the map. Uh, but I really like Reality Denied. And, and John Alexander talks about a whole bunch of different cases, too, not just the Sherman Ranch. So I would highly recommend that. I'll have to read. Yeah, I'll have to read that one. Um, I have to throw it out there because I, I know I said only an hour, but I have so much more I want to ask you. Do you have time to go over the hour? Or are you going to have a I'm hard good. Yeah, um, I'm good. 15 minutes. Awesome. I appreciate that. Um, could you talk to a little bit more on the credibility of Terry and Gwen when you first talked to them? Like, what was their credibility like as witnesses? Yeah, when I first met Terry, you know, Terry is like a salt-of-the-earth guy, just a normal human being who just wants to raise his family out in the Uinta Basin, where he had lived for a long time and had relatives. He wanted to breed cattle. And he's a very sincere guy. 
and you could tell that Terry, he just he just wanted it to go away. It, there was there was you know, the, and, and that's why I think they were reluctant to to really come forward because they just wanted to live a normal life. They just wanted it to go away, and they didn't understand what was going on. And and the fact that he was hesitant to say a lot at first, and just sort of the way he said everything, and you knew this isn't a guy, it's not a guy who's doing it for publicity. He just wants the problem to go away. And ultimately, that's what happened because we wrote the story and Bigelow, you know, ended up buying the ranch. But yeah, I, you know, and Gwen, like Gwen was was uh, stressed because, and she ended up actually losing her job at the bank. But she was stressed about that because people in the community, like, would talk to her at the bank about UFOs. And then, like, her boss would be, oh, she's chatting about UFOs for five minutes when she should be working, that kind of stuff. So that became a stressor for them. And then again, the kids in school were kind of hearing it. So all of that stuff, I mean... And, and again, this is a ranch out in the middle of nowhere. There, there's no way you're going to invite a reporter out and make up some incredible story. What for your own profit, your own benefit? I mean, I mean, how did they behave after that? As soon as they got the non-disclosure, they disappeared. They went to Idaho, and I think they're back in. Uh, I've heard they're back in Eastern Utah now. And, and at some point, I might want to get back in touch with them. But they they didn't want the publicity. They didn't. They wanted it to go away. And and of course, there's you know some evidence of a phenomena sort of following you, if you will. So I think they wanted to get away from it as much as they could. So, yeah, I, I never questioned their credibility at all. I mean, Junior Hicks was a big part of it because everybody respects Junior, um, and he covered so many cases, and he felt it was it was just the most extraordinary case that he'd heard of in the Uinta Basin in terms of a lot of concentrated activity about around one property. And actually, the guy who lives right next to the Sherman, who lived right next to he, in fact, I think they're, they still may be there, but uh, it's a guy named John Garcia, and I knocked on the door when I was there because the Shermans kind of, I don't think they told me anything, but they said, you might want to talk to the neighbors. <laughs> and I tried to get into, I think, a, I think a woman came to the door and she slammed it real quick. And then I, you know, I just didn't, I told her who I was and what I was interested in. They didn't want to talk to me. But I found out right after that from the uh, Uinta County Sheriff's Department that John Garcia, in fact, had reported two cattle mutilations in that, that 95-96 um, year. Um, so, so their neighbor right next door, they had a couple of them too. And the Shermans during those years had a total of four cattle mutilations and then four others that disappeared, four cows that disappeared. And, um, well, five that disappeared, one they got back. Uh, it was in a ranch, like the very next day, it was in a, in a ranch, uh, on a ranch, 20 miles away. How does that happen? You know, uh, and that one got returned to them, which is fortunate. But yeah, I, I never questioned their integrity they, they they did not ask for this they did not want to be a part of it when people hear about cattle mutilations i'm sure they think that you know it's probably a, a wild animal or something like that but how common is it for cattle to be attacked or is there even is there even wildlife in that area that could potentially take down and kill cattle of well, that size n- n- not 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 uh by coring out the rectum and removing the genitals and removing all the blood with laser-like precision with high heat, which has been scientifically studied. So yeah, there are predators that can kill cattle, but it doesn't look the same. Yeah. Maybe, maybe talk me through like, what do these cattle look like when they're found? Like what is, what is the mutilation okay, involved? Well, cattle mutilations in the U.S. started, um, it, it's fairly famous, 1967. There was a horse called Snippy, also called Lady. The horse, this was in uh, southern Colorado, and that was supposedly the first uh, mutilation of a horse, first mutilation case in the U.S. And then they continued on since then. They were big during the 70s. Like I said, we had a big rash of them in the 90s. And basically, 
Um, typically, the cow or calf is found, you know, ob- obviously dead, drained of all blood. Usually there is something there. Uh, in fact, the Shermans, the first two cattle mutilations, really the only thing they found, and they felt like they were interrupting the mutilators, is there was a, there was a, 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 a pinpoint directly through the right eyeball. Like, like Terry actually stuck a piece of wire through it. So Ugh. the eyeballs <laughs> have something stuck through. Uh, often the ear, something, something going on with the ear. Either one ear is missing. Sometimes there's a little bit of hide taken out. But almost always it's the genitalia and the rectum that are, that are basically just like cored out. You know, a lot of people have a lot of different theories. Um, we'll, we'll talk about my mining theory in a minute, but it comes back to cattle mutilations because I feel like the little bit I know about cows and humans and proteins and enzymes that I, I my theory is that the catamulations are, are for the ingestion of, of whatever, you know, the protein and the enzymes is that that's what they eat. Uh, whoever this is, <laughs> you know, that that's been my theory for a long time. I mean, other people think it's like environmental, like somebody's studying or something, the government, but so many catamulations all over the world, all fairly the same. Also, some of the other things that you'll see with the catamulation is there's often like a glob of what Terry described as like apple butter, like on the cow at some point, like that was part of the process or a residual from the process. And it was similar actually to the little pile of grease that Terry saw when he found the three dogs that had been zapped by the blue ball. It kind of turned into sort of the same substance with the same kind of chemical smell. Uh, and there's always a chemical smell often with, with calamination. Interesting. Did, did you say to, to eat? Well, my, my, yeah, I mean, so we have to ask ourselves, okay, who's doing emulations? Why are they doing it? Are they doing it because cows are similar to humans and they can look at the environment by examining these particular areas of the cow and tell how we've affected the environment, which a lot of people theorize because um, there were a lot of, have been a lot of cattle mutilations around. Um, there, was a, there was a lake in northern Utah that was polluted, I think, and there were a lot around that area. Um, nuclear sites, uh, that kind of thing. Okay, well, maybe they're testing you're testing what's going on, but but what you have, what I look at with Uinta Basin is there's also people are hearing machinery underground, and as Sherman's heard that too. Okay, so let's look at it in total. Okay, so you've got machinery underground, you've got ships that are you know coming and going, you've got creatures that are seen, uh, you know one one crawling through what appears to be some kind of uh, <clears throat> uh, tunnel or portal. Uh, right, that was seen with infrared light. This was later by the NITS people. Um, and then you've got these voices, you know, these disembodied voices that are just kind of laughing at the Shermans. And I will add in some stuff that's off the record, so I can't tell you the detail, but stuff that I've heard and found out about over the last 10 years that tend to corroborate what I'm about to tell you. And that is that my theory, and of course, there's a lot going on here. And, you know, whether it's another dimension, whether it is like a a parallel earth that exists within our own realm, you know, or if there's a third and fourth dimension, we're occupying the same planet and they can come and go, but we don't have the technology. Um, but my feeling is this, okay, machinery underground, the Uinta Basin, tons of minerals. I mean, that's what you've got out there. There's a lot of mineral extraction, right? All right. So we know that, um, you know, there, there's certain minerals that are abundant in certain places, and I think we're learning more about that in the universe. I mean, we're going back to the moon to mine something, right? What is it that we're mining on the moon? I, I saw that recently. It's like, okay, well, now we, now we decided we need a resource for the moon, so we're going to go back to the moon. But it makes sense to me that this is some sort of mining operation, that this is some sort of um, species that, for whatever reason, 
can utilize uh, and finds valuable what is located beneath you in a basin. And another reason I think this is possible, uh, or you know, at least a theory to consider, is because directly behind the ridge where they were seeing the giant UFOs that would just come up above the ridge. Well, from the from the perspective of the Sherman's house, directly behind the ridge where the UFOs were coming, that's Bottle, Bottle Hollow Reservoir, which is big body of water right behind it. And people have seen UFOs go down through, but just go into the water and disappear, Bottle Hollow. So my feeling is like maybe there's some sort of connection or base way to get underneath the ground through Bottle Hollow. And that these are just, this is just some kind of mining operation where the people are like, yeah, we're just here to get what we need. We're going to leave you guys alone. For the most part, they think about this. What if, what if you're a miner and you just were like, what if, what if it was, uh, what if Americans and we, and we were going to another planet and we just, and we wanted to extract the minerals. Okay. Well, who would go? It'd be a bunch of like construction worker types, right? Well, if they, if they're bored and they know that there's like some, some local species that isn't as developed, wouldn't they like, while they're invisible or whatever, wouldn't they like make a comment or wouldn't they, Hey, let's mess with these people. We got nothing to do. We're on this planet here. Let's move this woman's towel while the door is locked and freak her out, you know. So I, I, I think because there's, there's, there's this whole trickster, prankster element to it all. And, and I think if you, that's yeah, really, so I think that's got to be. Yeah, part that's of really it. interesting. Yeah. I, cause I remember I was reading, I was reading Jackie Valley's book, but even uh, prior to getting interested in, in this story and his theory, his kind of like interconnected theory that there's there's some common source to this phenomenon that kind of relates even back to like folklore of like fairies and the trickster and, and things like that of like some something out there that has lived parallel to us but plays tricks on us and it, it has created folklore and still manifests today possibly through stories like this. I find that just such an interesting unifying theory for this phenomenon. Obviously doesn't explain anything at this point but... I like your I like your idea a lot. I guess that that brings me to another question that I have, which is: Have you heard of any other location in the world that exhibits similar phenomenon to Skinwalker Ranch? And do you? And if so, have you seen any connection to what it is about these locations? Whether I mean, it sounds like maybe in your mind it might be minerals, um, but have you have you noticed any direct connection between Skinwalker and any other location that's exhibited well, this phenomenon? I think this stuff, this stuff is all over the world, and you know, Hudson Hudson Valley, New York, was really busy for a while. Um, the, the um, San Luis Valley of Colorado, like I said, where Snicky the Horse was originally found. Um, David Perkins, the writer who worked on this a little bit, the, the, the guy who did the Spirit Magazine article, he actually lived in that um, commune in southern Colorado in the late 60s, and he saw a cattle mutilation, and he went into the sheriff's department to ask what was going on, and, and they said, uh, oh, uh, you and your people at the commune are our number one suspects for mutilating this cow. <laughs> so he was on that side of it. But yeah, it's, it's all over the place. Um, nowhere in the world, though, I think, and, and I would say just the Uinta Basin, not just the Sherman Ranch, but I, I don't know of a place in the world that has more activity than the Uinta Basin has had, because it's much far farther reaching than just the Sherman Ranch. If I'm right about Bottle Hollow being an entryway to whatever's underneath, then it makes sense that the Sherman Ranch would be a place where the activity would be concentrated, um, you know, because if that's their entry and exit point, then okay, let's go find a cow. Hey, there's one over there on John Garcia's land. Yeah, there's one over there on the Sherman's land. We'll take that, and, you know, whatever's close by. So it makes sense to me. But but yeah, there's stuff all over the world. There was a guy, uh, a guy named Gary Hart uh, from Illinois that I spoke to. In fact, I tried to look him up to see if he's still around, but he... Um, he had written an article uh, about a place in Missouri that was very similar, and he was onto the whole uh, portal, um, 
wormhole kind of thing, uh, just feeling like, you know, there's a vortex of some kind, which, which may also be the case. You know, is there a vortex or is it, is it just the way that whoever these people are, these beings are, they, they manipulate science in a way that we obviously don't understand. And maybe it's a portal, maybe it's not, but whatever it is, it's certainly, they certainly have a technological advantage to us. And like I said, Northern New Mexico had a ton of stuff going on too. I mean, up to, I, I really am convinced that any, any state in any country that I would go to, if I really looked into it, I could find uh, exactly the same kind of stuff. Now, would it be concentrated like the Trimmer Ranch? Maybe not. But yeah, there's stuff all over the place. It, I, you know, uh, oh, I did find. Yeah, I mean, go ahead. Well, I was going to say to your point. I mean, if we brought our technology back to the Stone Age, you know, people would be equally baffled by what they would see as to what we are when we talk about this phenomenon. Putting it in that context, I think, helps frame it mm-hmm. a little bit. To realize that you know technology can seem like magic if you don't Absolutely. understand how it works. Absolutely. Hey, and I did find that quote I was looking for a minute ago. This is from Terry. Um, this is one that he gave me in that initial interview because I asked him if uh, if they could take anything positive from this two year ordeal, and he he characterized it as quote a bad deal all the way around. He said all that's all that's really redeeming is that you have some knowledge that a lot of people don't have for what that's worth. And, and that was really his feeling about it. Was he, he was just disgusted. He was disgusted by it. Yeah. He really was. And, and again, it's not like something happened every single day. I mean, very often, it was usually the new moon. Yeah. And, and they feel like, you know, and they saw, um, you know, they interrupted whatever it was several times because it seemed like the mutilators would kind of show up whenever, whenever a, ca- a cow was birthing. So, like, the first time they saw the lights was when they had a um, cow that was calving in the field and they went out to you know attend to her and help her but they noticed that there were there were lights in the in the field and they thought for this is when they first started seeing them they thought they were like um, kids on motorcycles or somebody's driving an rv around or whatever and then they saw them again later and they chased after them after the lights and the lights were going down to the end of the ranch towards the creek where there's a fence and nothing else and suddenly the lights just lift up 50 feet and go across the trees and disappear so you mentioned a story involving Nids about a creature that seemed to crawl out of a portal. Could you elaborate a bit more yeah, on that there story? Yeah, there was a, there was, a, and and I'm not sure who the people were. I suspect Terry was one of them because Terry ended up staying on with the ranch for quite a while to um, help help the Nids investigators. So I'm pretty sure it was Terry, and then probably either Colm Kelleher. They haven't said. I mean, this is in the uh, this is in uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker, the 2005 book, where they talk about this. But basically, they were they were looking through infrared, infrared um, scopes and they, so they didn't see this with the naked eye, but they were, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I think they were actually on the ridge and they were looking down below the ridge and they saw this sort of auburn light sort of start as a pinpoint and then get grow larger and larger. And it was like about four or five feet off the ground. And then it eventually grew to like, you know, three, three feet around or whatever. It was just like illuminated, something and then they they see this this creature a humanoid like creature crawling sort of crawling through it as if trying to make its way through the tunnel or through the light or however you want to put it and then this creature comes out sets its feet on the ground it's walking down the light disappears uh they can't they don't see anything of this being after that um but yeah that they saw basically a hole open in the sky although it was just above the ground and saw a creature coming in and out of it. Um, Gwen had, when, when they were there, another thing that was interesting, um, Gwen saw a, one of the, bo- the small box-like crafts um, park in the, I think the middle pasture, but fairly close to the house so she could see it. And I think she was looking through a scope. Um, but she 
saw what she described, and, and Terry saw it later because because it, it came back. But they both saw the same thing. It was it was this an individual who was very large, very stocky. I got the impression like you know seven feet maybe at least, and dressed entirely in black, like some kind of black suit, along with um, uh, a visor of some kind because they could see a reflection. From the visor, and it, you know they were like in the cockpit, like getting ready to, to drive this vehicle uh, or something. And and I know when when I was when I was at the Desert News, and I I told him because this was going to be a follow up story, right? And I told him about it, and my editors were like, uh, this, this was uh, this was when the the dream team was playing for USA basketball in the Olympics, and they're like, oh, it's you know all the NBA players for the first time are playing in the Olympics. Like, oh, it sounds like the dream team has come to visit the service. But that you know, and they and they had. Um, they had like creatures with red eyes, like two pair of red eyes, like like look through the windows kind of thing. And at the same time that, you know, Ryan Layton knew of this case in uh, central Utah where there was a 16-year-old who claimed that she had been being abducted by uh, some kind of creature with, with red eyes. So that kind of, you know, correlated a little bit. That was going on. It's just the, the story is so strange because there's just every every encounter, every story there seems to have something slightly different about it. You you know, you look for consistency, but it's just like it's so it seems so yeah. erratic in how it manifests, exactly. um, which makes the story just so strange. So we've been we've been referring to the ranch as the Sherman Ranch, but eventually it's become dubbed as the Skinwalker Ranch. How did it earn that name? Yeah, well, I think I think the first time I saw it may have been in the 2005 book um, that Hunt for the Skinwalker. That's really what what I think pinned it. Um, it well, the, okay, so the legend of the Skinwalker, uh, it goes back to the 1800s when the Ute Indians who, okay, the, the Sherman Ranch is basically on a very small um, property that's that's within the Ute Reservation. So they're surrounded by the Ute Reservation pretty much. And then the Navajos, of course, were located further south. Well, in the 1800s, um, according to what I've read, the history that I've read, um, the Utes apparently engaged in some slave trade with some of the Navajos that they, I guess, in battle had conquered or whatever. And um, so, so the Utes believed that the Navajo then, because and these two tribes were, I guess, warring with each other and taking different sides and whatnot over, over the years in the 1800s. And so eventually the, the Navajos allegedly put this curse on the Utes. And it's the skinwalker, which is like supposedly a, a, some people call it a witch. Uh, most people call it like a shapeshifter, where it just kind of shows up and leaves, and it's mysterious and it can take different forms. And 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 basically, the Utes really didn't hang out on the ridge too much because that they were told that's kind of the area where it was. Um, but yeah, so that you know, skinwalker. And again, I don't think I don't think this whole thing is oh, it's the skinwalkers. I think skinwalker is either a a reference to whatever these beings are being able to simply, you know, cut through time, cut through space. I mean, I mean, some of the stuff that I can't tell you that's off the record involves beings being seen and then disappearing suddenly, just like in a, just in a blink of an eye. Okay, so so supposedly that is is going on too. But yeah, it's um, strange place. What what's what would those beings look like? Um, I I don't think they ever got. You mean the ones that the Sherman saw? Yeah, the ones that would disappear. Oh, oh, well, okay. Well, there's, uh, yeah, I have a great description that I can't tell you because, and, and the reason is because I've gotten it secondhand and I haven't investigated it myself, so I don't want to repeat it. Um, but, but I will just say this, um, there's a variety. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. I just want to say, because you mentioned how sporadic and erratic everything is and it's hard to put, you know, any pattern. In it. Well, that, that, to me, that reinforces 
my theory that it's like a mining operation because if you're here from another planet and you're basically or, or another dimension or the same planet but you've operated at a different frequency whatever it is let's don't keep hung up on that okay whatever it is if if you're there um you know you're going to be uh intent on what you're trying to do and a, because i don't i don't think human beings have anything to do with what they're doing i think we're just kind of here and, and and if you look at it from that standpoint then it makes sense because all of the activities going, oh, well, we saw something and then it disappeared. Well, obviously that thing doesn't want to be seen, right? So to me, the, the pattern of all the behavior, including the trickster stuff, really suggests to me that there's something that we don't know that is going on, that is purposeful, that is being conducted by people with higher technology, and we're really not a part of it. And they don't really care about us. They probably are told to stay away, but if we're in the way or they come across us, you know, that I'm sure they have personalities just like humans do. What would, what would a human do if they met, you know, uh, a lesser species, to, to their knowledge, on another planet. You know, I mean, all you got to do is watch Star Trek, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if there's a prime directive or not. There probably is. Yeah, so did you, when you were investigating, did you hear any uh, anything about stories prior to the Shermans purchasing the land? Was there any sort of phenomenon or knowledge of this sort of activity? Yeah, there's a bit of a controversy because it was owned, they're, they're the Myers brothers, and... Um, one was a doctor there in town, um, the, the first Myers, uh, the guy who owned the ranch with his wife for quite some time. I think he died, I want to say late, I want to say 87. And then his wife lived there on the ranch by herself for about seven years. And anyway, so when the Shermans bought the place, they, you know, they noticed that there were some peculiar things. Like, for example, every window in the house was like bolted, like you could lock it. Um, every door in the house had like, interior locks and there was like this panic room in the middle of the house that had locks on the inside and allegedly like scratches down the i, I don't know I mean, it, you know it wasn't there and a lot of this is secondhand and a lot of it is not from the sherman's initial interview because they didn't want to talk about this kind of stuff yeah yeah but yeah yeah it's uh there's no going to it did you did you say you did interview robert bigelow at some point yeah i went down to vegas in uh, uh july june or july of 98 and actually went to the national institute of discovery science and uh, was treated very well and we toured uh unlv went to uh, he's got a couple of buildings named after him and we just talked and again he yeah he did not want his photo taken but no he's you know i i think bigelow is a shrewd businessman i mean he, he made his money Basically on on fairly controversial, uh, I think real you know like it was the it was a new thing in Vegas like these one week rentals and stuff and he really capitalized on that and I know that there were some issues, allegations or whatever that uh, against his business practices back then I, I don't know more than that but but to me it's like yeah here's a guy who yeah he he knows how how to make money and and again this guy buy okay well that's the other thing it's like okay if if I'm Robert Bigelow and I'm buying this ranch from the Shermans I'm not undercutting them I'm going to pay them. What they paid, and I don't know how much the undercut was, but I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but he definitely seems like someone who isn't going to spend money unless it's exactly, you know, what he wants to spend money on. I mean, he said he's going to put as much as $500 million into Bass, as much, you know, that much, of his own money. Uh, and again, I don't know if Bass is going to come back or not, but uh, but he's got plenty of money, but he wasn't willing to give the Shermans much more. I'm cu- yeah, I'm curious about what his, I mean, what his logic around keeping everything, did he talk on like why he wanted to keep everything so secret yeah. what he was doing there? Yeah, yeah, the, the argument is that they wanted to, and it's a good argument, they wanted to do everything scientifically. They wanted to observe, record, and do what scientists do. Well, the problem is the ranch doesn't really cooperate because it doesn't give you enough tangible evidence uh, and, and it doesn't want you to know this stuff. So for example, one thing they did is they put up cameras, uh, three different cameras on three different poles 
in the middle pasture where a lot of the activity was happening and each camera could see the other camera, okay? And then they had one day where just all the cameras went blank and they went out there and found that all, okay, and they could, they could look at the other cameras and see what was happening. And it happened in like, uh, like no time at all. In other words, there were, the, there, there were uh, these cameras were taped onto the poles they were all recording at the same time, and in one instant, all of the instrumentation from the cameras, the tape, everything was stripped, pulled off. They were all shut down at the same time, and none of the camera angles showed anything going on with the other cameras. So it happens instantly. Nothing can be seen, and the end result is that they can't film anything that's happening in the pasture. So obviously somebody doesn't want them to have the cameras up and whoever doesn't want them to have the cameras up has the ability to get rid of those cameras without being seen in less than a second. The other weird thing about that is they also know that those are cameras. So if we are talking about a phenomenon that maybe is, you know, not human, for some somehow it knows that these those objects are cameras, which makes it even stranger because it means that they must know about our technology and the way we work. Yeah, I think I think they know a lot and I think they're able to uh, and again, I don't know what the science is, but it, it's either it's either you know be invisible and be uh, where you can essentially spy on humans, know what they're doing. I, I, very omnipresent. I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's they do. I mean, I mean, the things that happen to to Gwen, the little things like that, with with the groceries being put back up. Who does that, and how can that happen? How can that you know? It, it's beyond our technology. I know when I was reading the book, The Hunt for Skinwalker, that it was mentioned that Terry was actually able to record a few instances of maybe lights or something like that. Did you ever see any of that footage? Um, no, never saw it. When when I interviewed him, they, at that point, had, had taken two videos. One they thought was pretty good, and they gave it to a guy in town who claimed to, like, be able to do something, like, enhance it or whatever. And then Terry was just told by the guy that, you know, like, it broke or it something happened to it. And the guy was, like, really weird about it. So there was that, and then there was a second video, and they, I don't think they had either videos when I was, because the one had already been lost, and the second one I don't think was very good, it really didn't show anything, so I don't think they did anything with it. And then I remember reading, though, in, uh, in Hunt for Skimwalker that, that allegedly the Shermans had five what they call video fails, like five different times, I don't know if that includes those two could be five separate ones where they tried to videotape or tried to film something and, and, and it didn't work. Like it either didn't come out or the battery didn't work or something. So there's like something going on. You know, it's difficult. It's difficult to... Uh... You, you mentioned that the ranch was eventually bought by Brandon Fugel, who's also a real estate developer in the area. What do you, what do you know about Brandon and do you, what do you know about why he purchased the ranch? Yeah, I don't really know much. I just, you know, what I've read, same as what you guys have read, um, you know, uh, probably, you know, he, he's got some money and he's looking for something that's fun and something he can invest in. And, you know, I mean, it's a fun show and, and you know, and he's he's created a, a show for himself, basically. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know what his original intentions were. I just, I, I think it's incredible that he paid $4.5 million for it. a lot of money. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, that's a drop in the bucket for Bigelow, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't know. No, I'd like to talk to him, though. I mean, I, I you know, I, it's great. I'm really glad they're doing it. Um, I, I really, as, as I mentioned before, I've, I've got a, uh, I've got a screenplay that I've written about the ranch, and I, and I think I need to call uh, Brandon and maybe Tom DeLong and a few other people and see if we can get, <laughs> see if we can get some funding for the for the Sherman story because uh, you know I have the rights to it. They don't because they send the rights away to, to Bigelow uh, unless those have been descended, which we need to find out. Because I have a lot, you know, and the Sherman's um, interesting. I think. Um, you know, people have asked me if I keep in touch with them. Well, 
uh, apparently they're back in Eastern Utah now, but they, they kind of wanted to be left alone. But I did get, in 2010, I was disappointed that I saw it too late, but back before Facebook changed its algorithm, at that time, I don't know if this happened to you, but it happened to me a couple of times, where people who are not your friends, they message you, and then it goes to some lost part of Facebook, and then you see it like a year and a half later. So Gwen got on Facebook, wrote me a really nice note in 2010, and they were in Idaho, and she just wanted to catch up and stuff. But I saw it a year and a half later, and her um, her account was down, so I couldn't communicate with her. But I did I did find their phone number in Idaho a number of years ago to, to, for someone else, I think a producer or whatever, who was looking to get a hold of them. And I'm sure I could, I could get a hold of them, and if we do end up um, making the screenplay, I would definitely talk to them and see if they still have, if they're still under the non-disclosure agreement. Because, you know, we would love some clarity and more information about what happened because, I, you know, and I really, I, I don't think they're inclined to do this, but I wish the Shermans write something. I want to talk to the kids. The kids were like nine and 13 and the nephew and they're all grown now. In fact, I have, I have addresses for them. I know, I, or I did. I think they were, some of them are in uh, Utah and some are in Idaho, but I think I could track them all down. But, but I don't think they, I just, they just don't want to, you know, it's in the past. for them. They just want to live a normal life, which is another reason why it's like, I, I really believe what they said. And the thing is, you know, NIDS has substantiated everything. So it's not like, you know, I mean, if, if the Shermans were uh, not being truthful, it, it would have been found out very easily. And of course, uh, these things that are being discovered on the History Channel um, series would not be being discovered right now. It would all have been a made up story. So. What are what are the locals' perceptions of the ranch and, and the phenomena? Did, did people take it seriously at the time? And do you have a sense, I mean, I don't know if you've been back recently, but do you have a sense of kind of like how people view it now? Yeah, I mean, I think the Uinta Basin is unique because there have been so many sightings and activities over the years. And the Utah UFO Display book came out. Everybody knew to hear Hicks. So I, I think there, the little bit of talking I did to look, you know, you've got basically two types. One type that says, yeah, I've seen something, or I know someone who's seen something, I'm very open to it. And then there's the skeptics, and you're going to find that in any community. But yeah, I mean, I think by and large, they got a lot of support, because like I said, the, the neighbor, John Garcia, had had a cow, a couple of cows mutilated. Um, other ranchers, other people in the area, really, you know, like a 100-mile radius. So it's pretty widespread. I think people there are aware of it. What are you going to do? I mean, I mean, they know, that they know for example, in, in 98, that Bigelow uh, set up a hotline for all of them to call in with all of their UFO and cattle mutilation stories. So I think those at that point would say, well, gosh, at least there's something to it. There's somebody with money here who wants to hear what our experiences are. It's kind of, you know, why would the person be there and, and be asking questions like this if something wasn't going on? So I think if you're a resident of the basin, I, I think there are very few people in the basin who would look you straight in the eye and say, oh, there's nothing to this. There's just too much going on. Given that there's a high population of Mormons living in Utah, is there any connection between Mormon belief systems and their belief in UFOs that may make them more open to these experiences? Well, yeah, I find it's a, it's a curious question as to whether, you know, the fact that uh, there's a large Mormon population there, if that has anything to do with it. I know that um, uh, the newspaper I worked for, the Desert News, was uh, is owned by the Mormon Church, and I did feel like when I moved to Utah, I felt like, okay, a Mormon-owned paper, they're probably going to be open-minded on this issue. And, and I did find that the case. What I thought was curious was that the Salt Lake Tribune, which, you know, was in in uh, incredible competition with us. I mean, you know, you get the Mormon-owned paper, and then you have sort of more left-wing workers-type uh, Salt Lake Tribune. The Tribune never did anything with this story. They never followed up anything. The only thing I could find was they actually did a review of the 2013 ripoff film called, uh, I think it was just called Skinwalker Ranch, which was 
piss me off because it's like this isn't the real story. They, they just kind of tried to profit off of the of the ranch's uh, reputation, you know, and uh, it, it just didn't work. Was that a was that a narrative film? Yeah, it was about a guy, a rancher whose son uh, is lost, like by some mysterious phenomena. And I only made it through the trailer, and it's but it has nothing to do with the ranch at all. But that's the only time the Tribune covered it and so the mormon paper was the paper that was that was running with it and and the other thing is um, leslie whiting who was the editor of the uina basin standard which the desert news had a relationship with and, and and shortly after all these articles were written in about 2000 i got moved up to editor so i wasn't writing the stories anymore liz uh she kept writing which is great um so so leslie whiting stories were appearing that's a mormon community updates all the time newspapers saying hey we're open to this you know and everybody seemed to be open to talking about it so i, I don't know i don't know if like if if uh, the unit basin is heavily like um baptist as opposed to mormon was there any difference or something? i i don't think so but but i think and again it's like people are individuals some mormons i've talked to who are just totally close off to it i know when the missionaries first came to visit when we moved to Salt Lake, I was like all excited to talk to them about UFOs because I was led to believe that the Mormon religion was really open to that kind of stuff. And they are to some degree, boy, the missionaries sure backed away from that. <laughs> yeah. So I don't, I, the answer is I don't know. Yeah. What, um, what effect, yeah. What, if, what effect do you think George Knapp and Colm Keller's book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, played in bringing the story to the rest of the country? And, and were you involved with them and talked with them when they were writing the book? Well, um, yeah, I've talked with George, uh, and they, they did a great job in the book, I thought, and they gave me a lot of credit for stuff that I ever heard on, which is great. But basically, see, that book came out, you know, George Knapp and Colm Kelleher are essentially under Bigelow's control at, at that point. And, and I mean, George would probably dispute that, but I mean, basically, they couldn't, well, because Bigelow was sitting on this stuff and really didn't want anything out. So, so Colm had, had been working for Bigelow since 95, and George uh, had known Bigelow for a long time. George, of course, is a Las Vegas journalist and had done a lot of good stuff over the years. Uh, so finally, when Bigelow decides, and this is, let's see, the book came out in 2005. So we're talking, you know, eight to nine years after he acquired the ranch, he's finally like, okay, giving out this information. Um, yeah, it was great. I think it had a good I have no idea how many copies sold or what have you. I do know that if you look at... Um, you know, uh, Skinwalker Ranch online, there's, a, there's about 12 different books. I think um, Ryan Skinner, Ryan Burns, I think there's another author that I'm forgetting. I've all written stuff, and some of those guys are just after the fact, you know, this is what we've experienced kind of thing. But, yeah, it's all over the place. There's a ton of IP. And like I said, I, that, that original movie in 2013, I think some people think that's the original story, and, and it's just not, unfortunately. But, yeah, the book was great. It was really just, it was like something like that needed to be done, but it had to come from Bigelow. Bigelow was going to have to say, yeah, go ahead, because he was working with these guys, and, and Cole Kelleher was like um, Nid's uh, PR guy. Anyway, you know, so these are two guys who uh, would be dealing with the public for quite a bit. So huh, I, I'm curious to know how many copies it sold, though. But it's... Uh, that helped, and, and yeah, it's really been an international story. It really hasn't uh, died down over the years. It's, if anything, it's gotten people, there's more interest in it, I think. Yeah, it's fascinating. We, we, we generally, for each season, we, we cover around five or six episodes each while we're working on it, and we're doing 
a story on the Utah monolith. I don't know if you remember that coming up. Yes, um, yes, and those guys and, <laughs> it overnight or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we we actually we interviewed the pilot um, who first spotted it, and in that interview, totally unrelated, he starts talking about well, there was this time. Uh, you know, I was flying near Skinwalker Ranch and I saw lights above the ranch and he told us like a, a full UFO story about the ranch. Wow. Um, and we, we didn't even tell him we were working on this episode. So that was really interesting. And then um, we were doing another interview for another episode that we're doing on the Sierra sounds. You ever heard of those? No. It's like Bigfoot vocalizations in the Sierras that were recorded back in the 70s. Oh, I, um, I think I've heard those. I think I've heard those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, one of the one of the people involved was he was he was relating that area where they were recording the sounds to Skinwalker Ranch, mm. and I was like, God, this is this is two different interviews. Like, <laughs> I didn't tell them I was working on this episode that all have connected mm. um, to this story. So I, I just feel like this this story for some reason has made such a huge impact on people. You know, they relate experiences to it that they weird experiences they've had to this ranch, which I find really, really interesting. Well, and I think, I think the history channel series for the last two years has probably done more than the book, you know, in terms of getting it out there. Do you think they've had any like security issues now that it's such a, a phenomenon, like people breaking into the property? Oh or... yeah. They, they had those issues. Yeah. There were security issues at the ranch from the start. Um, as soon, as soon as the story went public, I mean, before Bigelow bought the ranch, Terry had people showing up. Um, not a lot. I told you about the one, the guy that went out in the field and whatnot, but yeah, and and then and then they you know they made it more secure and then of course there was sort of this time in limbo when the ranch was sold nobody knew who owned it and all that and I think throughout that they've always had a caretaker there they've always had it gated off uh, I think there has I think there may have been a couple instances where they had to call authorities or whatever to get people you know just curious curious people and and initially that did happen I think when the story came out they. You know, people who just came came from everywhere. Not many, but uh, they, they would come to the ranch and see what they could find. But, yeah, it's been pretty secure. It's, it's hard to get on there to do it. But, but you can look at the ranch from other places, and that's what's a lot, what a lot of people do. And like I said, I, I feel like because they saw the UFOs over the ridge, well, the ridge isn't even on. I mean, that's on the ranch, but, but right next to it is Bottle Hollow, and you've got things surrounding it. Um, so there's a lot of territory there where you can see the ranch area without actually being on the ranch. And I think some people do that. I mean, there are people out there now, I think, right, every night that are looking in the sky, seeing if they can find something. Yeah, I think this this could be my last question, and I'll let you go after that. But you mentioned Bottle Hollow Reservoir. What is Bottle Hollow Reservoir, and, and have there been other phenomena associated with that location other than, you know, you mentioned a potentially seeing crafts near it, but is this any other history or... Or experiences people have shared about that location. Yeah, Bottle, Bottle Hollow Reservoir has been around I, a long, I think, since the 1800s. I know. I heard some story. The reason they called it Bottle Hollow is because there were soldiers in the area, and they would go get alcohol, and on their way home, they would toss the bottles into the reservoir, <laughs> uh, so that people wouldn't know they were drinking. I guess I don't know. Uh, but but I also heard that a lot of people like dump junk in there. You know, just like old refrigerators and old cars and that kind of thing. There's also there's one story about, um, and again, I, 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 you know, I'm reading it second, third hand down the road, so I don't know how valid it is, but there was supposedly a woman who uh, either drowned or, or I think she was pulled under by something. I don't know if she survived or not, but there's kind of, that's kind of an urban legend about Bottle Hollow. But um, the thing that I give, the reason I give a lot of credence is because the Sherman saw these ships rise just behind the ridge and exactly behind the ridge is bottle hollow so if they're not coming up out of the water 
they are for some reason hovering over the ridge or coming through something that's above the ridge, perhaps. But yeah, there's a mystique about Bottle Hollow, but I think it's like a recreation area. I mean, I think you can go and hang out if you want. Come look for UFO. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app. It helps get this content in front of more listeners, which means we can produce more episodes more often. Visit our website at www.strange-phenomenon.com for a full list of sources and more episodes. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at strange underscore phenom and on Facebook at strange phenomenon, all one word. Strange Phenomenon is hosted by Ray Tarara. It's written and produced by RJ Blake and Ray Tarara. Theme music by Tara Monk. Additional music provided by Sergi Cheramizanov.